At the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hey, ladies, we are back with another Crime Estate podcast today. Hey, guys. Hey, Heather. And hey, our wonderful producer, Melanie. Um, well, I don't know a lot about Idaho real estate, but we're going to be in Idaho today. Oh, I, I don't know a lot about Idaho real estate either. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't think we've done one in Idaho. I wouldn't think crimes would occur in Idaho. They do. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> wow, spoiler alert. Okay. It just seems like it would be so farmland and peaceful and only a few people like I know. You can't well, kill somebody because then you're like down 25% yeah, of your population. Right. Yeah. Well, because I don't know a lot about Idaho, I put together some fun facts. Oh, okay. Let's yeah. hear them. Okay. So Idaho state seal and flag was designed by Emma Edwards Green in 1890, and it's the only state seal that was designed by a woman. That oh, was look at them being progressive. I know. In 1890? In 1890, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Also, Idaho's, Idaho's population is 1.9 million. And to give you an idea of what that might look like, the city of Dallas has a population of 1.2 million. So you're right. There's not a lot of people there. Yeah, but more than the four in my head. Right. So. <laughs> right, true. Uh, and then also, Hell's Canyon in Idaho is deeper than the Grand Canyon at 7,900 feet to the Grand Canyon, 6,001 feet. I can't help but think that Hell's Canyon is not as well-traveled as the Grand Canyon because of the name. But, I mean, maybe that's just a marketing problem. They, maybe they need a good realtor right. to help sell it for <laughs> right. them. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I would not be planning any family vacations for Hell's Canyon. Where are yeah. we going this year? Hell's Canyon. Yeah. Mel, you're such our world traveler. Have you ever been to Hell's Canyon? I've never been to Idaho. Mm. I have not really been to much of that entire area. Okay, wait. Could you all find Idaho on a map right now? I, yes. I can, only because I just didn't write the story. So Okay. <laughs> well, no, it's it, because it's the one that kind of goes up. Oh, yeah. It has a little panhandle. Yeah. Beside Oregon. Well, now I could find it on a map. Yeah. But, Excellent. But you know what gets all muddled for me is like Montana, uh, Kansas, like that, all those over there. I'm like, where? What? Is that bad? Do y'all, can y'all name? I can't. That I name whole, all the states. like... West of Kentucky and north of Oklahoma. Just like a blah, like a thing. Yeah. But I feel like our kids all could rock this. It's going to be one of those things that we probably all could do at one point in time. Because I do recall, like, there would be tests where you had to kind of mm-hmm. put, put the name of the state on the maps. Uh, but and I, and I definitely recall my son having to do that for one of his classes when he yeah. was younger. But I think it's one of those things that you forget over time. Um, but I hope that we have some listeners in the upper Midwest I don't know. To Northwest? What would you call that? What would you call those? I think it's Northwest. I think it's, I mean, Oregon's definitely Northwest. Yeah, and it's right beside Oregon. And Oregon's like this big. But Idaho feels more Midwest. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. We need help. Yeah, if you're listening from that part of the country and we haven't totally just alienated you now. Leave us a comment. Yeah. Yes, I'm sorry. Well, I, no, it was me. I was like, oh, what? It was to- yeah, oh, you're right. It was totally you. There? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
and but y'all didn't grow up in Texas, but in Texas there's like two or you have kids in Texas. There's like two or three years of just Texas history and not anything else. So I can identify Texas. I know a lot of stuff about Texas, but not much else. I mean, are you saying you can identify like all the counties in Texas? Because well, no, if you I can can't pick identify Texas out of a map. Texas on a map, we've got a real <laughs> Hand me problem. a world map and I'll find Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I did, when I first moved to Texas, and we've been here like 22 years or something now, the number of state flags took me by surprise. There is a state flag everywhere. A city flag? No, a state flag. You mean like the Texas flag oh, is the amount of prominent flags. everywhere. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Yes, there are Texas state flags everywhere. And the number of times people want you to recite the Texas state mm-hmm. pledge mm-hmm. is yeah. serious. I never recited another state pledge in any other state I lived in. Did Did you know that Texas is the only state who's allowed to have their flag stay at, fly at the same level as the U.S. flag? All the other states have to be below, but Texas can be... That's because we're a republic, heard. because we're right, because we're our own, because we were our own country at one time. Yeah. the republic. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I didn't. I don't know that I knew that. Yeah, See, so. I, I, your Texas history is coming in handy. <laughs> well, Fourth and seventh grade Texas history for all of you non-Texas uh, listeners. You there's a year have, in high school too. I think. Nah, I don't think so. There's not. Oh, oh. I, I, well, maybe not. I it, don't know. But definitely, maybe it's fourth changed and since you were in grade. school. It could be that was. Early 90s. So could be. Um, so those were some lighthearted tidbits on Idaho and Texas. Inadvertently, we started talking about Texas. Uh, uh, of course. Of course. That's what we do. Um, but that's where the lightheartedness of today's story ends. Well, you know, it wouldn't be Crime Estate or an Atlanta edition of Crime Estate um, if we didn't have some murder or some gore. You really do like the gore. Well, yes, I do. And, right. I, and honestly, I hold back a lot. I could, I could go deeper, but Aaron... My husband is like, that was too much. I love that your husband's like cens- yeah. censoring you. Yeah, like, Erin, just let her say what she yeah, wants to say. Yeah, let me say what I want. I think maybe he's scared. <laughs> maybe All right, well, him. are you ready to dive in? I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. Okay, so as I said, we're in Boise, Idaho today at 805 West Linden Street in a two-story, 2,728-square-foot craftsman-style home built in 1910. Okay, so for those of you unfamiliar, a craftsman home is noted for its simple facade. It's generally square, often with steps leading to a front covered porch with beams and a V-shaped roof. Uh, we've talked about, I mean, we love craftsmen. Mm, we've talked oh, yes. about a lot of them on this on this podcast so far. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thanks for painting a picture for us. I think Melanie has, you have a craftsman, don't you? Yeah, mine, mine's a four square, but um, an American four square, which is a type of craftsman. Yeah. 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 And I... I'm jumping in, but I think we've commented that they get their name from the Sears Craftsman catalog because you could order a house from the catalog and it came with like all the parts that you could, it was ready to build. Yeah, I love it. Like a Lego set. And while we talk about the Craftsman oftentimes for some of these historical um, homes, nowadays there are many new build homes that I see um, in parts of Dallas, I'm sure other places that are built to resemble, you know, mm-hmm. with the Craftsman. Right. Um, there's, you know, it looks like a kind of a newish Craftsman. Yeah, they're yeah. pretty houses. I like them. Oh, lot. yeah, they're my favorite. So the home and the events that took place are so well known in Boise that the house is simply known as the murder house. Some locals even take it a step further and call it the chop chop house. If that gives you any indication of what transpired on June 30th, 1987 at 805 West Linden Street. I'm not sure what I think about that nickname. I know. Yeah, it's, it's pretty gory. So as it turns out, June 29th will actually be the starting point of this story. And it was a day 
that was anything but ordinary for three men, Daniel Rogers, Darren Cox, and Preston Muir. Is that how y'all would say it? Yeah. Okay. It's M-U-R-R for the listeners out yeah. there. I think Muir's right. Muir. Muir. I'm going to say Muir. I like it's it. Okay. Muir began his day attending a funeral. There, he and a few other mourners got into a scuffle after becoming intoxicated. Wow. That is quite some celebration of life. I know. Seriously. So police were dispatched to the funeral and 21-year-old Preston Murr was cited for... Oh, I said it wrong. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm going to say Murr now. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> okay. Murr. Uh, was cited for disorderly conduct. Later that evening, Preston called the police to report that someone had called him at his sister's home where he was staying with his girlfriend and threatened to kill him. It is unclear what, if any, action was taken by law enforcement. What we do know is that after calling the police... Murr called Daniel Rogers, 37, to enlist his help to find out who had placed the threatening call to him. The two men made plans to meet up with 31-year-old Darren Cox at the Circle K store. Witnesses report seeing Murr using a payphone, carrying a baseball bat. After the Circle K meetup, the men returned to Murr's sister's home. There, they discussed the phone call and also discussed the possible location of some guns that had recently been stolen from Rogers. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So Mm -hmm. these are the three guys Mm -hmm. that were at the funeral together. This morning, they got into some sort of altercation, but not with each other. They're buddies. Right. But Murr was the only one at the... Oh, Murr. Murr was the only one at the funeral. Right. And then he called Rogers and Cox and met him at Circle K. Okay. And their plan was to figure out who was making these phone calls to his sister's house. Yes. That was the plan. Okay. Got it. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. After the Circle K meetup, the men returned to Murr's sister's home. There, they discussed the phone call and also discussed the possible location of some guns that had recently been stolen from Rogers. The trio then left that house and drove to Rogers' home at 805 West Linden Street to grab a gun. At the time, 805 West Linden was owned by Daniel Rogers and his wife. After retrieving the gun, the men left and traveled the streets of Boise, looking for the apartment where Murr claimed Rogers' stolen guns were being kept. It's unclear how long the men searched for the guns or if they even found the guns, but we do know that the three of them returned at some point to the home on Linden Street. And do they think that these missing guns were were stolen or, yeah, I guess stolen would be mm-hmm. the right word, by the same people that were calling Muir? I don't think so. Okay. I think so it's like they're a whole separate. Like they're just having some real problems. They're just, yeah, they're okay. going through it today for some reason. So around midnight, an altercation broke out between the men and Preston Muir was shot in the shoulder with a 357 Magnum. Muir was able to make it out of the house into a neighbor's home where he unsuccessfully attempted to gain access. He began banging on the door and yelling, let go of me, before being dragged away and let out one more scream of anguish. The neighbor, probably terrified, did not open the door, but looked out his window. Um, that is so terrifying. That happened to a friend of mine pretty <gasps> recently. Yeah, what? she... Um, this guy, like after dark, it wasn't midnight, but it was probably like 10 or 11, came up to her front door and started banging and begging to be let <laughs> oh, in. Oh, no. And she, I mean, she was terrified. She wasn't going to open the door well, yeah, for him. yeah, of course. And it turns out he was high as a kite mm-hmm. and, you know, she had to call the police, but. Wow. That's yeah. terrifying. Yeah. Mm-mm. I don't know what I would do besides freak out and have a full on panic attack. Yeah, that happened. But then you hear about these stories where people have had very valid yes. instances. Yeah. Like, you know, somebody having a car. I mean, if you think about it, my son's about to start driving. Let's say he has a car wreck outside of a house and it's dark out. Like, I would, and, and he can't find his phone, like, I would want him to go to the nearest house. And, and 
and, and, you know, you hear these stories about people shooting out of fear, like through a mm-hmm. window or something like that. So it, it's two prong. On one hand, like I absolutely could see being terrified and scared. On the other hand, I'm like, you know, there are times people need help. Huh? Right, right. You're right. The neighbor called the police and reported what he had seen and heard, but police didn't respond that night. He also noted that he had saw that he saw movement on the porch of 805 Linden. He then saw two figures hosing down the porch and reportedly saw one of the figures approach the house with a flashlight, seemingly looking for something. When the police did not arrive, the neighbor went to sleep. What? Yeah. That's crazy. I know. And what year are we in again? 87. Okay. So he doesn't have his cell phone out to like Correct. be able to record what's going on. Right. right. Yeah. But once again, why the heck did the police not I come? I know. Right. So the next morning, the same neighbor called the police report that there was a there is blood on his screen. This time, police did respond, and not only did they find like, blood on the screen door, right? Oh, on the screen door. On the screen door. Um, they found trails of blood all over the neighborhood, including sidewalks and at least one other neighbor's home. Oh my God, can you imagine having your morning coffee and like you just walk outside to get the newspaper, you know, like we did in 1987, and there's blood all over your sidewalk and stuff? That would be so scary. It's super horrifying. And I saw the photos. They're not like little drops, droplets of blood. They're like full-on bloody handprints smeared, and it's it's pretty gory. Okay, so we have those to post on our socials. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So in response to the blood, investigators cordoned off the street so they could determine if there was an injured person inside 805 Linden. Upon knocking and calling out and receiving no answer, police requested a search warrant. When they were able to gain access to the home, they found a lot. A lot more blood, a lot of money, and lots of drugs. They also discovered a bullet fragment inside the dryer and a bullet hole in the door of the top of the basement steps. Aren't y'all amazed at what investigators are able to find when they tear a house apart? Like, I feel like I'd be really good at that. Like, just like making a mess and finding stuff. You're, I mean, I don't want to say you're really good at making a mess, but you are good (laughs) at finding stuff and like digging for the truth. If I need to know something... I come to you. Elena always knows. Oh, okay. All right. I'll Don't take you think it. that's no, true, Mel? No, I think that's very true. Although I wouldn't be super impressed with these investigators because it doesn't sound like it was very hard. Right. This was not hidden. I mean, there are blood all over these screen doors. If they were trying to clean it off, they did a pretty bad yeah. job. But yeah. I'm going back to these three guys were supposed to be friends, mm-hmm. right? And at this point, we don't know that there's anybody else involved. Correct. Because they were just all running around together. Right. Yeah. Okay. As With far guns as guns and drugs and money, fun. which is a bad yes. combination. Yes. Okay. Got it. Yep. So not surprisingly, the homeowners, Daniel Rogers and his wife, were arrested on June 30th for the possession of controlled substances with an intent to deliver and for other drug-related offenses. It was reported that there was 13 pounds of marijuana that was confiscated. I don't know how much that is. Is that like... I don't know. I, th- I think my dog weighs like 15 pounds, my dog. So I feel like that's a lot of marijuana. Okay. What's like the legal amount of marijuana? Mel, do you know? Um, well, are you worried? Less about than 13 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious. Especially oh. back then. So several days later, the body parts of Preston Murr began to wash up from the Brownlee Reservoir, 100 miles from Boise at the Idaho-Oregon border, which is how I knew that Idaho. <laughs> I was just about to call you on that. It's like, that's how you knew it yeah, was next exactly to Oregon. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay, cool. So Rogers and Cox were soon arrested for the murder of Preston Muir. For the murder of Preston Murr. Can we just call him Murr Muir? Muir. Murr Muir. Yeah. I feel bad because he's the one that died. Let's just call him Preston. Preston. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. So in a dream scenario for investigators, it didn't take long for one of the men to turn against the other. 
For his part, Darren Cox was quick to hoist all the blame on Daniel Rogers and gave most of the details of what transpired in the early morning of June 30th. Cox led police to evidence and blamed his own fear of Rogers as the reason for any part he had in the crime. The men were ordered to stand separate trials. Rogers' trial was first up, and it marked the first time that he admitted that he was at the house and present at the time of the murder. Yeah, I mean... Roger seems like he is a bit of a bad guy. Um, I was looking up and found an old article that apparently he had a prior conviction for murder in California. Like he was in his late thirties, um, which and Preston Murr uh, was actually only twenty one. Mm-hmm. So there was a significant age gap mm-hmm. between the two of them. Um, but what was even crazier to me was that in eighty five. So with, you know, the year and a half or so before this crime, he and his wife were allowed by the um, state of Idaho to become foster parents. Mm -hmm. And so they had actually had three teenage boys that cycled through their house at various times in 85 and 86, right uh, prior to this murder. And the Idaho state never even saw that they had a prior murder conviction. Um, So definitely not the type of people you would be wanting to... uh, to be a foster parent, but I guess records were a lot more spotty back then. Uh-huh. Well, that's what I was just, what, as you were saying that, I was like, that sort of blows my mind, but I'm thinking like early eighties, mm-hmm. you didn't have a lot of computer records yet. Yeah. 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 And if you, you know, probably answer no to, you know, right. do you have a felony conviction? It might take a while for them to track that down mm-hmm. and, and kind of piece it together. Yeah. You're right. And that's sad. Mm. So at his trial, he testified that he broke up a fight that occurred in the basement between Murr and Cox. He further testified that Murr suddenly came at him with a knife and that he fired a warning shot in self-defense. Only it wasn't a warning shot and Preston received the bullet in his shoulder. Rogers claims a bullet to the shoulder was unintentional and upon being struck, Murr lunged at him, causing him to lose grip on the gun and fall. According to Rogers, it was Cox who grabbed the gun and began to fire at Murr as he ran up the basement steps, and it was also Cox who dragged Preston back to the basement of the house after his attempted escape. Further, Rogers relayed that as he waited upstairs, he heard what would have been the fatal shot to the back of Murr's head. Cox then told Rogers of his plan to dispose of the body, and while Rogers claimed that he did help clean up the blood and get rid of evidence, he could not help Cox dispose of the body how he wanted to dispose of the body. I'm almost afraid to ask. Yeah, it's pretty gruesome. It's reported that Murr's body was cut into 13 pieces with an axe and placed into separate trash bags before being thrown into the reservoir. So, okay. I'm trying to think, at what point in this, like, altercation did he get out of the house? Was it after the warning? I mean, he was already bleeding, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So he was probably hit in the shoulder mm-hmm. and then tried to leave. And then leave. tried to leave. Yeah. And then somehow they dragged him back to the house. Correct. Cox, according Cox. to Rogers. Got Cox it. Cox dragged okay. him back and it was Cox that fired the, the last bullet to the head that killed him. My boy mom heart wants to say nothing good comes and happens when you combine drugs and alcohol and guns. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. Public service announcement yeah. right there. Yeah. I think it's a good one. So after the trials were both said and done, Cox, who admitted to his part in the crime and led police to evidence, served six years. Rogers, though, was not as lucky. He would be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and he is currently serving his time at the Idaho Correctional Center. So Cox, because he was the first to admit any part in the crime, received a much lighter sentence of six years. But, I mean, they're saying that he was the one who did the final blow? That's what Rogers said. 
But I guess it's like a, and I don't know all he the. He said, she said. Yeah, and I don't know all the legal stuff, but I guess some in some sort of plea deal. He must have had like a plea deal that if he's had a lighter sentence, then he would tell everything that he knew. And because he's the one that cracked first. And Rogers didn't admit any part in anything until his trial. He was put on the stand. That's typically how it works in Law & Order. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, we know a lot. (laughs) So... Do you want to know what happened with the house? Yes, obviously. I couldn't find a lot about what happened to the home directly after the murder, but I could ascertain that it was owned or is still owned by James Howell since 2000. And according to all reports that I found, he used it as a rental home, mostly to college kids. Okay. (laughs) Would you let your, I guess that should be a new question we should, we could (laughs) add. Would you allow your college student to live in a murder house? Ooh, I think. Ooh, no, I don't like it. I don't like it either. It's weird, right? And college is like one of those times where I feel like you have to be so careful about your kids' like mental health and like all sorts of, I, I don't like it. Yeah. Same. Yeah, because um, this was right by Boise State, you know, mm-hmm. which is a well-known uh, college. So yeah, I could see it. I mean, you know, we, I lived in some nice and some less nice uh, houses during my college years, but uh, nothing that would be qualified as a murder house. Right. So there's one persistent rumor that I found was that at one point it was used as a frat house by Boise State students who would regularly see blood dripping from the basement walls. And it should come as no surprise that there were reports that the home is haunted by myrrh and other other spirits. But as far as I could surmise, nothing documented, just conjecture among locals. Of course, these college kids, like they were high as a kite and they're like, oh, that's blood dripping from the ceiling. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they... They knew what they were getting themselves out. It might not have been an official frat house, but there are a lot of times those kind of like pseudo frat houses where, uh, you know, a bunch of people live together. I mm-hmm. mean, it, like on the outside, I saw, I looked at the pictures and you could see it has amazing bones and it mm-hmm. was actually supposed to be a nice neighborhood, a nice tree line mm-hmm. street. This was on a corner lot. Um, but the pictures I saw, it was acting like it was not um, being. It's not holding up quite as right. well. Like I was seeing that, or at least the owner is, you know, allowing it to go kind of mm-hmm. uh, downhill because there was windows that were broken, boarded up windows, trash thrown throughout the yard. So I'm sure the neighbors just love it. Right. Yeah. So would y'all buy it, live in it, sell it? Mm. Mm. Um. I mean, technically what we know is that they were selling marijuana there. Mm -hmm. But I'm a little weird about houses that have had drug deals in Mm -hmm. them. I don't like that. Mm -hmm. I worry about like drugs seeping into the walls. I don't even know if that's a thing. (laughs) Well, I think it is only because we just finished watching the Breaking Bad season, five seasons, and it is. Well, Well, and I know, I was going to say, because I know on like, you know, in Texas, and I assume in most other states, you have to fill out like a disclosure notice about your house. And that is one of the questions, like, has it ever been known to be the place where methamphetamines mm-hmm. were produced. So, I mean, I don't trust these guys. I'm going to say no, just because of the drugs. Okay. There's no telling what they were doing and what's in those walls. And then after fraternity boys, I'm I'm out on this house. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't like the, the um, ones where there's uh, the most cut, gruesome. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, like the, the ones that are most gruesome, like somebody being cut and dismembered to me, that, that kind of, is one of the things that I don't like. So I would say no. Yeah. No. Yeah, same. It's the it's the chopping of the body for me. Yeah. And well, in terms of listing it, 
listing a house that a bunch of fraternity boys are living in is going to be a hot mess. Mm-hmm. I might be out on that too. I might try it if they're realistic on what we could get for it. Yeah. But how are you going to like show it? Yeah. Oh. yeah. I mean, that's going to be yeah. real bad. You're going to walk into like dirty underwear on the floor <laughs> and like last night's beer bottles on the kitchen counter. Yeah. They'd have to be really realistic. Yeah. About yeah. the price. I'm with you. Well, that was an interesting one, mm-hmm. Alana. I Thanks. liked it. Yeah. It's fun. Well, until next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our crime estate family. If you're curious about today's featured crime estate, you can find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimeestate.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at crimeestatepodcast. Have a crime estate we should cover? Let us know. Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.